Welcome to the broadcast. Every Arizona homeowner's best friend. Thanks for tuning in. It's Rosie on the house. Your weekend wake-up tradition. Every boys and girls getting down on the phone. Come on around back, Arizona. It is Saturday morning. 8 o'clock, the outdoor living hour. Already the first Saturday of the month here is March 2023. And as always, we have Julie Murphy in our Farm Fresh Hour, spokeswoman for the Arizona Farm Bureau, joining us in studio. And you have packed the studio this morning. I have packed the studio with the Van Hofwagens and the Akamazos. Yes, I'm excited about today because we've got two farmers and then somebody calling in on the third hour. And we're ready for it. And, and what's our topic for today? What, what have so, you got this bevy of uh, expert information and, and resources to join well, us to cover? Almost too much, right? <laughs> the fastest hour in radio. So we are going to talk about ag technology innovations, but I also brought in an alfalfa farmer, Wade Akamazo, and a dairy farmer, Ari Van Hofwagen, because a lot of technology improvements over the decades have occurred in those industries and continue to incur in you know merge and improve. So uh, we're dealing with that, and I thought it'd be fun to have two people on this time. Actually, three if you count Robin Lawson. She's going to come in on the third hour. So should I take over? Let's get started. All right. So I have, uh, like I said. Ari from the dairy side of it and Wade from the alfalfa farming side of it. But both of you have a huge history. So I'm going to start with Ari. Ari, give me a little bit about your family's farm background. Yeah, so I'm a fourth-generation dairy farmer. Our farm is – our Paloma Dairy is in Gila Bend. Um, my grandfather started dairy farming here in 1960. My dad in, I think, about 1980 started his dairy farm. So it's been in the family for many years, and we really love Arizona as, as a home for our farm. Awesome. Wade? Oh, wow. Um, fourth generation as well. Uh, family immigrated from Italy in the late 1800s through California and into Arizona in the 1911-12 time frame. So um, <clears throat> long history, long history in the valley, watched it grow. But fourth generation grew up in Tolleson, Arizona. My grandfather homesteaded in Levine. My dad moved to Tolleson. Uh, we've moved from Tolleson to Gila Bend, Buckeye, Harquahela Valley. Uh, so just kind of go west, young man, as, yes. as, as the town uh, – kept growing and you're kind of farming all over so how early and this question is for both of you but i'll start with wade this time how early did you know you wanted to farm no i wanted to farm um i would say probably more when i was a teenager but being quote forced to farm uh eight years old <laughs> so when i was eight years old uh, that was the first job was to get up in the, in the summertime for four or five hours a day and go out on the go out on the farm and uh, learn how to irrigate and and start that process, and then as I as I grew up and got a little bit older and could handle more equipment, could you know drive tractors, et cetera, and I turned 16 and became more valuable because I had a license, and all of a sudden it was became a labor of love, and went to went to college and just decided wanted to come back um, more for that, but also because of the family. Uh, Awesome. Family issue. Well, we farm kids. Sometimes we don't have the choice, and we kind of complain when we're little, but those are the best stories we tell when we <laughs> get older. absolutely is, yeah. All right. When yeah, did you Yeah, know? for me, same thing. You know, grew up young, chores nonstop, always work to do. Um, but, you know, as I grew older, um, um, 
milking cows was was eat, was always there feeding cows so it was always tractors just like wade said driving tractors was fun but my dad always kept it fun as well he always had toys he always had go-karts and quads to play with and run on the and, and operate and play with on the farm so my dad always kept it fun and then as i grew older though yeah naturally the the variety of tasks the uh the uh, animals, the, the the wide open space, it was a blast. So I naturally came right back right after college. Well, then you were fully indoctrinated. Yeah, that's how <laughs> it and then the thing I'm thinking, don't you have three other brothers, siblings, yeah. are, and all of you are in the farming, correct? Yeah, that's right. I have, okay. th- I have two older brothers and one younger. And so it was a blessing, too, as well, where the farm was growing. We were able to grow the farm in time for my oldest brothers to come in, and there was still room for me. By the time I came out of college, our dairy had moved out, moved out to Gila Bend. It was growing, and we needed help. So that just kind of like Wade says, all of a sudden there was room, there was a need, and there was a passion, and it was a perfect fit. You know, so, one interesting yeah, story is <laughs> his grandfather started in 1960, and my dad started his farm when he left my grandfather in 1968, and we were a mile and a half away from each other. Oh, wow. So along Broadway Road between 99th Avenue and 83rd and you know, when I was going to college, I was watching his dad build his dairy a quarter mile south of, of our headquarters. And 10 years after that, all of us are down in Gila Bend. So Isn't that wild? <laughs> we're all just kind of moving together. So many parallels. Okay, let's talk about challenges because we have a lot of them in ag. And I, it's kind of a tie-in to what we're talking about. I want to point out that the, the dairy farmer can't do without the alfalfa farmer and vice versa. So talk about challenges. Yeah, I think on the on the dairy side... Consistent profitability is a real is a real challenge, I think, and we can't always control the price of the milk. That's kind of set by the market. So what we found is having good partnerships with farm farmers nearby farmers to secure that feed supply is really important to control the feed cost. As well as we've kind of ventured in, my oldest brother's kind of started our farm where we can start to grow some of our own alfalfa and similar crops in order to kind of control and save some of those costs. Uh, feed supply ties into that, and then also consumer demands for us on the dairy side. Um, People are concerned with your environmental footprint. They're concerned with how you're impacting the, the environment. And so taking part in those types of um, programs that evaluate what you're doing and finding ways to improve um, is something we've kind of taken on. And it ends up being kind of a strength once you take it, take it seriously and, and look into it. Awesome. Wade. You know, really for us, everything that Ari just said, it's, it's people. You know, it's it, labor has been a really difficult, yeah. uh, you know, issue for us as the economy's grown. And when we get out on these remote locations, not a lot of people want to drive from the city out there. So you have to provide housing, et cetera. But we've been able to, you know, take advantage of, you know, certain programs, the HOA program, bringing in, bringing in migrant seasonal labor, you know, which has helped a lot. But, you know, it's when you're competing with construction jobs, et cetera, that can pay a lot more because they can control their costs and be able to charge more subsequently, you know, to cover those labor costs. We in agriculture, we can't do that. We're you know, price takers rather than price, price makers. makers. So, and here's that nexus of why I've got both of you in. And Wade, we'll let you answer first. You know, talk about the synergistic relationship between dairy and alfalfa and why is it important? Well, the, the easiest way for me to, you know, to do it is a, a dairy is a vertical integration for a uh, alfalfa farm or or vice versa essentially you're turning water in at the ditch clear water growing alfalfa putting it you know through a cow and it comes out white on the other end yeah so you're turning clear water white you know in the form of uh, milk right yep 
All right. I think that's a great point. And I think so you're taking this this um, this crop that's not digestible by humans. It has high protein levels and you're converting it into milk that can be consumed by humans. We we can eat the cheese with high in protein, the milk that's great protein as well as uh, energy. Um, and so that's what's key. I think that's what the key partnership between a dairy is that is that cow that's in the middle of it converting that. Absolutely. And they can't convert like us. I mean, it's amazing what they can eat and convert it to a product that you and I are nourished on. So you two are an example representation of that local food supply chain. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's amazing. So because we're talking about technologies, and we'll probably get into more of that in the second and third hour, but what techno- technology improvements for the Akamazo family have you specifically done that have been transformative to you in the last decade? Um, really in the last couple of years, and this is not you know, technology that we, you know, that we developed or anything, but it's just something that we've You can take started. credit for it. We, we, no. won't. <laughs> we, we, won't. we won't hold it against we you. Won't. But um, we're running uh, Staheli steamers now. And so we're steaming our hay. And, and what that does is from a quality standpoint that uh, Ari is talking about is we want to get the highest amount of protein, you know, in our hay to be able to sell to, you know, to sell to the dairies. And the only way to do that is to save the leaf. Well, if we're in a dry, arid climate, you know, if we can control, um, if we can control the moisture going into, you know, the bale, we can save that leaf and save that nutrition and the protein. And at the same time, um, keep more tonnage in, you know, our hay rather than it, the leaf ended up drying and ending up on the ground. So it's telling me then most of the profit is coming in that, the leaf. I don't say necessarily the profit because I mean, I'm, you still have profit, the stem, but I mean the, the, protein, nutri- the protein, protein and the yeah. nutrition, you know, comes in the leaf. So the more leaf that you can st- keep in the bale, the better it is equality wise for the, the, for the cows to be able to turn it into so more, more, uh, more milk. These bales that you're delivering, I'm not picturing these like your three bales, three strand bales that you would buy for horse feed. Are these massive round bales? Are they the big rectangle ones? How big are these steamers that you're dropping these into? Well, it's so there's two different sizes of steamers because there's several different sizes of uh, baled hay. Um, I, I do both. So for for my particular farm, we grow hay in the in the early months when the when the when I say early months, March through June, uh, where we can have better quality feed. That's what we sell to the dairies, and then through the summer months when it gets hot. Uh, the proteins drop off, and then that's when I make the small bales. So, and then we stack and store them, and then sell them in the wintertime when when you can't produce hay. But the big bales are three by four by eight. They, depending on mm. your weight that you can put them in, will be anywhere from twelve hundred to fifteen hundred pounds. Wow. Sometimes even bigger, but you know it takes a uh, you know it takes big equipment to to run that. But and wow. how long does it take to steam a bale? It's quick. Uh, it, it's part of the process. You pull the steamer right in front of a right in front of the baler, and so it just what it does is it's got a boiler on it, so it just puts mist, um, hot mist, in in into the stand or into the windrow right before it goes in a baler, and and it just softens up that leaf enough to where it doesn't break. So it's one more piece of equipment that goes in line with the harvesting. Yes. So it's, it's, there's a train. Yeah. <laughs> there's a tractor, a steamer, and a baler. But it's huge because, as you said, you're keeping more protein in the bale because the leaves aren't breaking off. Ari, what's your take on this? Yeah, that's a, it's a huge di- it's a huge deal or difference maker uh, the steamer because that quality of the protein is is key. Um, I think on the dairy side, we 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 implement. Uh, I think the biggest thing would be RFID technology on the cows. Recently, we've I mean it's been probably ten years, but it's still a recent thing where we're able to um, track the records, the health records of each cow. Yeah, we have a lot of cows. 
but we are able to quickly identify which cow it is, um, zero in on the health records of that cow, and treat each cow individually with what she needs from at, at that specific day. Um, and we're going to dive into that a little bit more. We can do a lot of things here at Rosie on the House, but we can't stop the clock. Now, as we were going to break, are you we're talking about a new implementation that tracks the health of each cow. What was the name of that? Yeah, so it's RFID technology. RFID. Yeah. What does that stand for? So uh, I think it's radio frequency ID. So it's like a computer chip that's on the ear tag of the cow, kind of like an earring. And it's just a real quick way for our guys to use handheld computers or phones, really, swipe the cow's ear and it quickly picks up all, uploads all of her health records right onto the phone. So when the veterinarians out there with our herdsmen and women, they can just swipe ear by ear, and all of a sudden it'll ding, make a tone, say, "Hey, that cow needs a little bit of attention. She might need some medication today, or she might need to be bred or vet checked." And so that's just a little piece of one little thing. You know, it's been ten years, probably more, since we've been using it, but it is a massive difference maker on how we can give a big herd cow by cow attention. We can give each cow that cow by cow attention. Um, you know, kind of cool stuff. One thing, one thing about that with the RFD, RFID is also it, it can help track the profitability of the cow, and what the and what the cow is actually producing um, from the feed based off of the age of the cow, where they are in their where they are in their uh, breeding cycle, etc. But literally, we'll cull a cow. When I say cull it, it's all of a sudden it's like, okay, this this cow is no longer profitable, so. Maybe it's time to move it out of the herd so we can move a more productive cow in to maximize the feed that we're talking about in the water, et cetera. So. That's so interesting. So one of the questions we're talking about, ag innovation technologies, Robin Lawson's going to come in in the third hour. She's going to talk about robotics, uh, sensors, irrigation water management, and soil sensors, all sorts of stuff. The software we use today, RFID, um, all of those issues. And in fact... What you said, and maybe you already have given us your answer, Ari, is this whole issue of what fascinates you the most about the dairy industry today versus even – and you're young, so it wasn't that long ago. Yeah, I think it's the effort and enthusiasm we see in the industry. There's so many new ideas that are being brought to us. It's almost overwhelming. So we recently went to the World Ag Expo, and there's just so many new things, whether it's robotics to milk the cow or, or take care of the cow or it's – just artificial intelligence that we can use to look at all the data we already collect using RFID and other types of technology to analyze it. Cameras that might look at the way the cows move around in the pen and they might tell us, hey, these cows might be, maybe they're heat stressed because it's Arizona, it's hot. Maybe we need to adjust the cooling or maybe it's just flies are bothering them. We need to go out there and figure out a way to reduce the flies. But there's that's just a camera. A camera can do that now. Um, so artificial intelligence is, is a really interesting upcoming thing. But for me, it's really fun to think how many new things my brothers have implemented on my dad's, our farm now, but the, the farm that my grandpa and my dad started, and how many more things, I've got my boys and my daughter here in, out, out the side of the window, how many more ideas they're going to implement and what it's going to look like when they take over in 5, 10, 15 years from now. Right. What about in the alfalfa industry? Well, really, um, alfalfa is alfalfa. So, there, I mean, there's only so much that you can do to it. But. That's true. <laughs> um, but water savings etc i mean if we can move towards uh, more uh drip irrigation just to maximize water it's a it's tough depending on if you own the land rather than rent the land whether you can invest in you know invest in the technologies but probably the most interesting thing is how alfalfa is 
you know, really turned into a worldwide market. Mm -hmm. Um, Not only just, uh, you know, here in Arizona, but it's, you know, we we export it all over the world. It's a very uh, efficient feed for our dairy and our beef and... Well, it, not only efficient, it is, it's it's not perishable. So it can be stored. It can be, um, you know, stacked and saved for, you know, a couple of years, you know, depending on the – depending on which way you do store it, whether it's in a sleeve or in a barn, et cetera. But it's not a perishable commodity. All right. The World Expo show that you and your family – I think half of the Arizona farm families were there because it was in California, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, Tulare, California. Yeah, Tulare. So um, I, I would be calling someone because I'm always harassing my farmers and ranchers to either be interviewed, to be on the radio, yeah. to be on Talk to a Farmer Friday. And they were – several of them that I hit first were – out of pocket because they were at the World Expo. And you actually can turn it into a family affair. That's right. Yeah, yeah. we brought all of our boys, many of our boys, even my, a lot of my nephews this year, and they had a blast. Every single tractor, they're in and out. I've never seen as many doors on tractors be open between the, I think we had seven little ones going in and out. They just had a blast. Well, what makes Arizona agriculture so special, especially as it relates to alfalfa? And I know a little bit of that story, how, how many tons we can produce in a given year. But in the dairy industry as well, I mean, we kind of get to be top tier in a few things. Uh, Wade, I'll let you answer that first. Well, really, uh, with our weather, alfalfa, you know, alfalfa is great. We can, we can cut it year round, you know, for the most part. We get roughly eight or nine baled cuttings and then we'll green chop in the in the wintertime and just create silages because it's a little bit too difficult to a little bit too difficult to build but when you're comparing it to other areas of the country we're so dependent on water for our for our crops we rains you know three four inches you know a year depending on what areas you are it's a little bit different this winter it's been quite wet which has been very nice for us up in the mountains etc where we get our water from in the snowpack but when you're when you're looking at the cost structure of everything that we're doing, our our hay, our crops are so much more expensive to grow than it is in the Midwest when you're not dependent on not dependent on irrigation water or well water when when the when the actual water's coming from the sky. So it means we need those eight or nine cut cuttings. And I've heard with drip, like I've talked to Larry Hancock, and I know you probably know him. I mm-hmm. think a lot of his alfalfa alfalfa is on drip. He even gets more cuttings than eight or nine. Well, I mean, you can get as many you can get as many as you want. It just depends on the number the of days. It depends on the number of days you know in between cuttings. You know, okay. you can maximize, and that's that's a farm by farm you know situation. You have the right. you, you have the other situations. We'll be back in a few minutes. The cattle are prowling, the coyotes are howling, we out where the dog is born. Where spurs are jingling, a cowboy is singing this lonesome cattle call. In the Farm Fresh Hour, Julie Murphy from the Arizona Farm Bureau is in studio. We're talking ag technology and what uh, has changed in the alfalfa and dairy industries. It has increased our is designed to increase profitability and production may not always work that way but you've got another guest also as well yes robin lawson like the rest of us in the studio she's a farm kid she's an allerton and in fact just yesterday i interviewed her dad paco and her mom is karen and so uh, it's a family affair but she has ended up 
working in the ag technology. In fact, I think a, a company she works for, that's their specialty. And Robin, give us the lowdown on some of the technology. Yeah. Hi, Julie. Thanks for having me on. Um, uh, what's really fun about technologies is that um, they are advancing at an accelerated rate. So, um, and becoming even more sophisticated as we move forward. So kind of like what we saw with computers. Um, if you had a computer in the 80s or 90s, it was probably pretty large. It was clunky. It was very limited um, to what you could do. And while effective at the time, maybe not efficient. Um, so very similar in agriculture. We have softwares and we have sensors that once started out quite large. And maybe not all of the features that you really wanted or needed. They were effective at the time, um, but now they become more compact. Um, you can have more in that compact space and then become more actually efficient um, for growers. And that's in the way of sensors um, and softwares uh, and specialized across uh, crops and production um, as well as as a whole for agriculture. So one fun story I can tattle on a farmer. He actually is in Cochise County, and he's got all of his um, – irrigation set up on his phone and we're we're chatting he says oh just second and he pulls up his phone and he readjusts some of his irrigation sets and then we continue on the conversation Mm -hmm. and I think that was with pivots so that's very typical and Robin having like myself grown up on a farm and then you're front and center Mm -hmm. in some of these technology advances I loved what you said and kind of going back and forth with me that a grower has 35 to 45 seasons in his career. Some technologies yeah. take three to four years to, mm-hmm. to bring to fruition. Growers need technology to move a little faster than that because of it, right? Yeah. I don't know anybody that has 10% of their career uh, to give up um, to see if something's going to work, right? Um, and I know that it sounds small, but it's actually quite large. Um, and so what I think we've seen is starting to turn a corner in technologies, at least when they're finally approaching the farm gate, uh, is that uh, these sensors, these softwares have vetted out more of a solution-based approach rather than a, hey, I have this cool new basically toy um, that <laughs> I think is going to be <laughs> great on, on your farm or on your dairy or ranch. Um, And what that means is that um, they've done quite a bit more customer involvement um, in reaching out to growers and understanding what the actual problems are. I think, um, uh, you know, uh, Ari and Wade said it best is that it's really overwhelming. And the saturation in the agriculture technology market, sensors, hardware, remote sensing, um, equipment, software, um, I like to call it uh, login fatigue. Um, because even with each one of those hardwares, there's one more thing that you have to log into. Um, And so to sift through that, uh, instead of it being a toy, some of these companies are now reaching out to growers asking like, hey, what's keeping you up at at night? Um, What what is the biggest opportunity for you to have manageable and actionable input? What are the problems? Okay, we have the problems. What do you have on your farm where you can actually enact an action on that solution if this software or this uh, sensor is able to point out that problem? Wow. And that helps you narrow it down, right? I think that that's important. That's cool. So, Robin, stay on the line because we may have questions for you. But, Ari, I have a question Mm -hmm. or a comment and question for you. 
So Paloma Dairy received the Environmental Stewardship Award in 2022 from Arizona Farm Bureau. It all boiled down to a technology advancement, your methane digester system. Talk about this. Yeah, we were so honored to receive that award. Um, just like um, we, we just talked about, technology can be overwhelming. A lot of times it's not been proven. So we had many times people mm -hmm. come to us and propose an idea of building a digester, and several of those proposals fell flat. But most the most recent one is working. It's uh, been over a year now we've been in operation. We collect 100,000 gallons of manure a day. We bring it into our digester. We store that, di that manure in water for about three to four weeks. In the process, in the time that it's there, it's bubbling off methane through, out of that manure. We capture that manure, we purify it, and we inject it in, into the Southwest Gas natural, pipe, natural Gas Pipeline. So it feeds the community of Gila Bend and the surrounding farms and businesses. Wow. Um, What's crazy about it is we are generating about the equivalent energy of 3,000 gallons of gasoline each day. Really? Yeah. And so if you divide, that's enough, that's enough energy to propel 25, 23 to 2,500 cars a day. So really, you break it down. Four cows produce enough energy for you to drive your car each day. And it's a more, metaphor intended, solid, uh, renewable energy and it's not so in intermittent. We love solar, but it's in intermittent. We love wind, but it's intermittent. This is going to, as long as you're feeding the cows, this is going to work. Yes, they're going to keep making manure every day. And there's always going to be that energy there for us to capture and inject and harness and use. I never thought I'd hear the term purified manure. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> Ever. That is wild. So, and it kind of goes back to something that Robin said. You guys didn't... You weren't first-generation adopters to this technology. You waited until it got better? That's right. Well, you know, yes, we were interested, but it just it takes time for, for these ideas and these methods to work. It takes actually it takes programs for the government to get behind. So, it's, so it has to be financially feasible and, and make sense on, 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 um, from a financial standpoint. But it also takes time to kind of come, come together with the right idea um, because there are, there are lots of – always lots of new ideas, and, and you have to filter through. And you like she said, we – we, we only have so much time in our seasons, you know, to invest in a new idea. It takes a while to see if it works or not. And so you kind of have to take it slow and make sure whatever you're going to go with is going to work. And there's been a few people in front of it that's proven for it to work. But then then right away, we're, then right away jump in and give it a try. Farmers and are, are very innovative. We've, we've taken on and tried new things throughout the course of our history. And that's the reason why. A dairy cow in 1944 versus a dairy cow in the 2000s, we make, I think, um, like four times the amount of milk. Our carbon footprint is less than half because we're trying new things. and We're producing more gallons of milk with less water, less fuel, less inputs. And, and less cows. And less cows, exactly. We have And more methane. And now we're making methane and we're powering our cars with it. And is this a revenue stream for you? It is. You know, I think it, over time it, it should be. And over time it will be. It's, it's early on. Things are changing quickly. But, yes, it, the intent is for it to be a profit, another profit center. So addressing the, the big issue I said early on is profitability. This is another tool for dairy farmers to use to kind of help pour in more funds and, and pro possibly have more profitability to keep these cows at work. The last time I saw the Paloma Dairy, your older brother took me on a tour, and we got to see it. And, boy, was it intimidating for me. I I would have had to be an engineer to understand that. But, you know, and our farmers and ranchers have to be a combination of everything. So it was fascinating. Um, the technology 
way that you were talking about earlier as it relates to alfalfa, those steamers. Now, were you guys first adopters, or did you wait for version 2.0, version 2.3, or no, 3.0? No, we weren't the first adopters. They are actually developed uh, in, a, in Utah, and they've become more and more popular, you know, over the years. But you got to work, you know, just like anything else, you got to work out the kinks, you know, and like Ari's talking about, I mean, they're running several thousand cows. I mean, this is not a cheap investment when it comes to their digesters. Those, those think those steamers for us are, are not as well. They've got to be, they've got to prove profitability. Otherwise they, you know, they just don't work. And for the record, agriculture has been using autonomous tractors way before autonomous vehicles and semis were even popular. Mm-hmm. So, so Robin, one thing that, that I learned from you, if you're still online, is that um, it's not so much about the latest technology, but what's the pain point for the farmers? So I can't really ask the question, is there one technology that's going to be the big wow for agriculture? Oh, man, Julia, I think <laughs> uh, to go back to say, like, you know, what your wow is. Um, and only the grower can answer that question for themselves. Right. And, you know, like, uh, um, Ari was talking about what he did, um, to be able to create a new revenue stream for him, utilizing technology and also producing energy, which was a need, not only, you know, he had a need and as did, uh, the general public and man, Ari, congratulations on that award. Well-deserved. Um, uh, I think when it really comes down to technologies, uh, it depends on what you need. So if you need um, some support with uh, irrigation management practices, maybe you need soil probes. There's some really incredible soil probes that are out on the market now. There's one called Soltech Wireless. Um, they look like little minions uh, from <laughs> uh, from the movie. Uh, you know, um, the minions. I love it. And that you bury it um, with your crop. Uh, and it has a variety of sensors that are measuring how the water moves through the soil, temperature, um, uh, and it can get dig, dig, dug up with the crop, or you can put it on top of the row, uh, and it can lay there to be able to take temperature um, and still measure some water, you know, uh, in furrow to understand maybe a little bit more about uh, some irrigation practices, um, depending on if you have like sprinkler or uh, inferro, but also creating an opportunity to understand where you're creating an environment for disease and maybe get ahead of some of that disease pressure for crop protection. Um, that That's the first kind of soil sensor that we've seen like that. And it's sturdy and it travel, it can travel with your crop through its entire life cycle. So if this is a crop that gets stored, then that um, sensor, that Soltech wireless sensor, can travel with your crop. Um, it'll measure bounce while it's traveling, so you can make sure that you're optimizing the best route if bounce is an wow. issue um, for damage to your crop. And then it gets stored with your crop as well. That's um, Because a lot of times storage facilities have opportunities um, to manage their temperature and their humidity inside so that we're reducing opportunity for disease while in storage. Cool. Wade, you had a comment. Yeah, you know, as far as ex- expanding technologies, I was just on a uh, um, uh, call with the University of Arizona a couple of weeks ago, and there's some students there that are developing what they call an agrophotovoltaic, which essentially is wanting to grow crops underneath solar panels. And it's a new technology. Yes. I mean, there's there's possibilities about it, but... They invited some growers to get on there to basically, hey, help help us poke some holes in these things. What are we not seeing, you know, et cetera. And but there's so many great ideas out there. Whether it's whether it's what I just mentioned or it's vertical farming, um, there's a lot of technology that's coming down the pike. But the issue ultimately is, 
is that there's so many great ideas. Who's going to pay for it? Does the general public want to pay $25 for a watermelon or would they rather pay three? Right. Well, when you give them the option to say, okay, if we do all of these things and we, and we protect the environment and we do everything that we possibly can, it's going to cost you. Oh, well, we don't want to pay for it. The cost of inputs. Exactly. Yep. And so the cost of technology. Until we can get that technology on a commercial basis – you know, in a localized uh, market where we are way different than the rest of the country, you know, it's tough. So there, there's a give and take and, you know, balances there. Right. So and yeah. I think of one of the farmers, speaking of soil pro- probes, that showed me all of his – he can just totally track his fields because of the soil sensors that he's got positioned in there. So I have a question for both of you. Actually, two questions. There was a statement made earlier that said a farmer has 30 to 40 seasons. I find that quite low. I mean, both of you guys growing up in it, I mean, maybe paid <laughs> or, or maybe maybe 30 or 40 profitable. But I, I think most farmers that are you know, fourth generation, by the time you're said and done, you, you probably have closer to 80 or 90 seasons under your belt. Yeah, there's some that hang. You know, our population of our farmers, the average age is... 61 so yeah yeah it's amazing and then i have another really what i think is a dumb question because i think i should know it but you're talking about how many times you can harvest alfalfa so how often do you have to plant alfalfa like once the seeds in and you cut it eight times a year do you have to replant it again or will that alfalfa you know root Mm -hmm. in the soil last five years 10 years 20 years how long will it keep reproducing well Typically four years, you know, okay. d- depending on the quality of your stand. A lot of it just depends on weeds, et cetera, and h- how long how long that stand will survive. We've had them as short as three seasons and as long as seven or eight. And again, it just depends on uh, how profitable they are and if they're still producing. I think that's a great point to bring up because alfalfa, you're not having to till the soil and spend a lot of fuel, diesel, wear and tear, you know, in order to replant that every single season. It'll stay and I think another good point about like just touching on that is alfalfa's got a really deep root. And so it's taproot. It, it, you, if you get into the summer months where you don't have as much water, water's tight, you can, not, you can stretch the waters out on that alfalfa crop and let it kind of stress and sit. Yeah, it, hurt, it might hurt the yield a little bit on the following season, but it's very flexible and tolerant of this drought and the salty salinity we have here in Arizona. So it's a really, it's a really compatible crop for the Arizona region. It keeps the carbon in the ground yep. that all of our uh, climate change people are. Yep, and we're re- by, we're not, by not tilling that soil so often, that's exactly keeping the carbon in the ground and, and improving the, if the footprint. So as high-tech and sci-fi as I can get, and I will share this, about four weeks ago I was in Yuma taking the tour. I've been down there a lot. I love Yuma. I love all of our ag in Arizona. There's this big square box going down the field, and I asked my host, my farmer host, what that was, and he said, that's a laser that is hunting and finding the weeds and zapping them with a laser. So again, trying to reduce chemical use and all this other stuff, and it's a, it that, actually looked like an oversized refrigerator. That's a really good point. That was the highlight of our farm show in Tulare. We, they had a demonstration where they had like a conveyor belt, and it would bring these little pieces of wood across that had a shape of a, a weed on it, and the laser would just zap it and burn a hole in it. Well, we were all watching around. My kids had some foam cows that they'd collected at one of the dairy <laughs> the, the, the dairy exhibits earlier in the day. You can tell and where this is he's going. He's like, yeah, hey, do you guys have anything you guys want to f- zap or, or shoot with the laser? And like, oh, Teo pulls it out of his pocket. Let's, let's 
shoot this thing. So they lay a little cow, put a little X on it, and it goes through there and shoots a little a laser hole and burns a little hole in the side of the cow. But just incredible and again, how it was a plastic. It was cow. a plastic <laughs> little foam cow, and any little boy, little six year old boy, thought it was great. But the idea that it could just shoot a weed, burn it, singe it, done. No, you know, no chemicals needed. Really, really yeah. cool, and interesting technology coming down, coming down the. By the way, Wade and Robin's still on the. Line and Robin, I just want to tell you thank you for participating. It was interesting, but uh, Robin did say, Wade, that your point about the economics of it is a very key point. We we can do just about anything with today's modern technology, and we're making those applications in agriculture. But if it's in the end not affordable to the farmer, nor does the consumer want to pay for it, where you know there's going to be slow adoptions, or we're going to have to shift. The other thing, Robin, that you really taught me today is that it's all about the pain point that the farmer has. And if he can make that transition so it, uh, he reduces costs, he improves his profitability for the sustainability, including improving the environment, it's an amazing thing. So my final question to both of you, and Wade, you can pop in first. You know, what do you love about Arizona agriculture? Why is Arizona agriculture so special, our $23.3 billion industry? Well, it's way different than agriculture anywhere else. I mean, when you sit and talk about with with other people, and it's like, oh yeah, we get ten cuttings a year, and it's like, oh well, we only get three. Well, how do you get ten? It's like, well, that's our weather, and that's our water. It's in our ability to do that. You know, whereas you go further north or in, into different areas, their seasons are three and four and five months because it gets too cold and it snows. Here we're growing we're growing year round, which is you know which is great. That doesn't give us much time off, which isn't always. As, yeah. Is much fun, Trade right? Off. But and I think Ari can attest. You know, cows are milking every day. I don't doesn't matter if it's Christmas or not. So every yeah. day, I think that's a good point. I think for for cows for dairying in Arizona, it's it's nice to have. We have some hot months and it's rough, and we're putting misters and fans on. And the cows are hot. We're all hot. I mean, most of us leave if we can. Naturally, our cows can't leave. We're staying with me all through the summer. But um, but then the winter comes around and it is just beautiful. Our cows are enjoying the sun. They're out uh, nice and warm and a little bit of rain recently, which has been good. A little muddy, which which is a good trade-off we'll take. But um, it's beautiful weather here, eight, just like eight, nine months of the year. And whereas our colleagues in other parts of the country are freezing cold and all our cow, the cows are huddled into a barn just trying to stay warm. And so that's what I love about just the Arizona climate, uh, farming and dairy farming here. And even in the hottest day of summer, because I have. I've gone into those barns, and it's 66 degrees with the fan and the misters and everything else. Yeah. So we have um, – we really want to say thank you to the whole team, Robin Lawson on the technology side of it, and actually our farmers too, Wade Akamazo, Ari Van Hofwagen. I like to say about the Van Hofwagens and the Rovies, if they come to a meeting, we know we have quorum because <laughs> there's uh, – a lot of Van Hofwigen, so we appreciate that you guys are dedicated to agriculture. Thank you, guys. Thank you. You can support local agriculture by becoming a Farm Bureau member for $60 a year subscription, azfb.org, arizonafarmbureau.org. Sign up. It comes with all kinds of great cost-saving value as well, and you're supporting the local agriculture 